0: All right, folks, well, hey, why don't you grab your Bibles, pull them out, open to the book of Daniel, chapter 3, where we've been over the last few weeks. We titled this sermon series, Faithful Living in Fragile Times, and when we chose that title a month and a half ago, we had no idea how timely it would become, almost prophetic, And what we've been learning in this series is what it looks like to remain faithful to God in Babylon, to remain faithful in exile, where Babylonian exile becomes this metaphor in the Bible for living in a world where we don't belong, living in a world and trying to remain faithful in a world where we're out of place, where we are the minority, where we find ourselves surrounded by structures and a culture that don't share our values, don't share our worldview. And just like Daniel and his friends, the, the people of God throughout the ages, they, they found themselves asking the very same questions that Daniel asked. See, Daniel's story it's not just an amazing story. It's, it's timeless. It's true for all peoples. Christians of every age have faced so many of the same challenges and questions that Daniel and his three friends face. Questions like, what does it look like to, to remain faithful while we're here? How much of the foreign culture should we adopt? How do we maintain our identity as the people of God when there is such a strong program of indoctrination happening all around us? constantly. You remember in week one, we, we noticed how these teenagers, these Jewish teenagers found themselves enrolled in this extreme Babylonian makeover. Do you remember this, where they were, where they were forced to eat Babylonian food, and they were pressured with Babylonian education. And they, they, they were meant to dress like Babylonians, speak like Babylonians, think like Babylonians, even their very names were changed. Do You remember this? This social engineering project. We have these young Jewish people with beautiful Hebrew names that their parents had given them. Godly Hebrew parents giving them names like Daniel. Remember we learned the name Daniel means Elohim is my judge. And Nebuchadnezzar forced his name to be changed to Belteshazzar. There's a reason, folks, why we name our children Daniel, all right, and not Belteshazzar, and it's not just because you don't want your kid to be bullied at school. It's because that name means may Marduk protect his life. And so these these teenagers found themselves in this heavy system of indoctrination, social engineering, and it had to have been so confusing for them. They had to have wondered, how do we navigate all this? How do we know when to draw the line? Where to draw the line? And and folks, that's that's today. That's that's live. That's us right now in our world in our culture. So many of us as Christian people who want to follow Jesus, we find ourselves in such incredibly complicated times in our world. We're constantly being presented with new ideas with different forms of education, with pressure from social media and the entertainment industry, new philosophical ideas coming at us in waves. It can be so confusing. It can be so challenging to figure out how to make sense of it all. And we find ourselves asking the question over and over and over, Lord, where and when do we draw the line? And the clue I want to tell you today the clue, and it's not me that's going to tell you this. It's Daniel chapter 3. The clue boils down to worship. It's a worship thing. Will you look at it with me? Daniel chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Here's what happened next. King Nebuchadnezzar, remember him from last week? King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth, six cubits, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And so the reader is obviously automatically going back, comparing this moment to what happened last time in chapter 2, where Nebuchadnezzar had had this dream of this colossal image, this colossal man, and the reader can't help but think, wait a minute, this sounds really familiar, except that in this moment, The image, the colossal structure, is completely covered in gold, whereas in the dream, it only had a head of gold. And so the reader is thinking, Nebuchadnezzar, I think you forgot what the image was supposed to look like. Remember in the dream, Daniel had said, okay, yes, you're the head of gold, but after you will come another kingdom, and scholars think maybe it's been about 17 years, and so maybe Nebuchadnezzar forgot that part of the dream. Maybe he thought, well, there's not going to be another kingdom, so I'm going to cover my image completely in gold. It's not just going to have a head of gold. It's going to be gold from top to bottom, or maybe, more likely, after 17 years, Nebuchadnezzar had decided, I'm going to defy God's dream and God's interpretation, and I'm going to create my own reality in this world. I refuse to accept God's plan for human history. I'm going to determine my plan for human history. And folks, this image was really impressive. Even from modern day architectural standards, it was needle-like. So that those, those, those dimensions there, the 60 cubits, that's 90 feet tall. That's, that's like a nine-story building. But it's, its breadth is only six cubits. That's nine feet in circumference. This is like a tower. It's like a needle stretching up into the sky just to keep it falling over would have been an amazing architectural feat. It was daunting and it was impressive. It would have been eye-catching. Remember, this was this was a plain. So so there were no trees. This would have been the by far the tallest structure and it was covered in gold. So the desert sun would constantly bounce off this image and catch people's eye. It was meant to be impressive. It was meant to be eye-catching. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't just intend for this statue to impress. As we're about to see, he had much bigger plans. He intended to use it to consolidate power and force people into total devotion from everyone in his kingdom. Verse 2. Then Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces. So basically, everybody who's anybody was there, all right? And we have this complex list of people in government. Scholars have tried to make sense of the list. Why do we need all these different names and titles and positions in government, to which the reader says, yeah, welcome to government, right? So we have the prefects, the satraps, the officials, the governors from all the provinces, about the tone here. The narrator is doing something intentional. I want you to start paying attention. It's the way that he uses this almost odd forced repetition. It's almost sarcastic. In fact, it's not almost sarcastic. It is sarcastic. It's mechanical. It's supposed to sound that way. Listen now as I read for this mechanical repetition of ideas and words. It's the key to understanding the meaning. Verse Verse four, and the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, leer, trigon, I asked Colin to use a trigon in worship today, but he said no, harp, bagpipe, so even the Scottish show up, that's good news, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And see so you hearing it? This tone... Our narrator, if it's not very obvious, he's, he's intentionally almost mocking what's happening in this moment. He's saying this moment is, it's, it's, it's so ridiculous. It's so mechanical. It's so forced. It's so obviously a setup. Did you see the repetition of the word, the, the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up over and over nine times the reader hears that. This is an image that Nebuchadnezzar set up. And all of these people, the who's who, the the officials, the governors, the prefects, the satraps, they've been forced to come out onto this plane. And then you have this ridiculous repetition of every member of the worship band over and over and over. And the whole purpose of the mocking, the whole purpose of the sarcasm is for the reader to realize this situation is completely ridiculous. It It is a forced dedication celebration. It's a setup. It's a joke. It's a total joke. I heard a story once of a visit that Hitler made to Italy when he and Mussolini were still getting ready to form their, their alliance. And Mussolini really wanted to impress Hitler, and so he forced his citizens to come out into the streets of Florence when Hitler was there. And the people of Italy were so underwhelmed and were so skeptical, but they had been forced to come out. And as the story goes, Hitler could tell that the entire, all the cheering, all of the pomp and circumstance of the ceremony, it was so forced and fabricated and false. They even had loudspeakers pumping crowd noise from old Italian movies into the streets because the people who are actually out there were very, very unenthusiastically cheering on. Uh, Hitler. And they're looking around going, this is an absolute joke. And same with this situation. And so our narrator, he pulls out his pen and he dips it in the ink of sarcasm to say, don't you realize this is a joke? But friends, let me tell you something. That's what makes it so dangerous. That's what makes it so serious. Because there were Jewish People, God-loving people in this crowd, and they're looking around, and everyone, the moment the trigon plays, every single one of them fell down and worshipped this image. Astounding. And and the reader, the, the Jewish reader is saying, wait a minute, that language of, of fall down and worship, that, that's 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 first commandment stuff. That's, that's, that's the very first commandment where God said, you shall not make a carved image. You shall not bow down and serve them. And here were Jewish people, almost certainly in this crowd looking around, and everyone is bowing down to a, to a, a, a man-made image. And so our narrator says, I'm going to tell this story with a certain hint of sarcasm so you can see through how crazy this is. It's a common strategy in the Bible. In fact, sarcasm is most often used in the Bible to make fun of idolatry. Isn't that interesting? The Bible has a great sense of humor, by the way. There are some hilarious passages, and many of them are passages where biblical writers just ridicule the whole idea of idolatry, of idol worship. One of my favorites comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 44. I'll go read it sometime later today on the Lord's Day. But there's this, the whole chapter is called The Folly of Idolatry. And there's this section where Isaiah describes a human being building an idol and then worshiping it as if it has the power to deliver him. And it's soaking in sarcasm. Sarcasm. So he writes, the ironsmith takes a cutting tool. This is Isaiah 44, verse 12. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and he works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man. With the beauty of a man to dwell in a house, he cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread and he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it, he burns in the fire. Over the half, he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. And the writer's saying, Don't you see the foolish ridiculousness of idolatry? And sometimes that's what it takes to to rattle people, to wake them up and realize this moment is absolutely nuts. It's so clearly a moment that Nebuchadnezzar has fabricated. And yet there are people that are there worshiping an idol. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, idols, idols don't have to be actual images to work their spell on the human psyche. In fact, most of the time, they're not. My guess is none of you have a golden calf in your closet that you secretly go in and worship. And if you do, call me later, okay? We're not that that duped. We're not worshiping golden calves. But here's the thing. Most of our idols are internalized. They're heart things. An idol is any heart-level substitute for God. It's anything that your heart elevates into an ultimate thing that you devote yourself or pursue or follow. Even good things, we can turn into idols. You can turn anything into an idol. And they get entrenched. They get so deeply entrenched sometimes that we're not even always aware that they're there. And, th- and these can be perfectly good things. A relationship can be an idol. A- another person that you just cannot live without. A life goal can be an idol. A possession can be an idol. A position can be an idol. That that promotion, that position of prestige, that quest that you're on, that's insatiable, that can become an idol. A political view can be an idol. A cause can be an idol. And here's the thing, folks, we're always all, it's always easier for us to see our neighbor's idol than our own. And so how do you know? Well, sometimes you know, you know by how touchy you get if someone messes with your idol, if someone pokes at your idol, how threatened do you feel when someone challenges your idol? How 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 devastated do you become when you when you lose your idol or it's threatened somehow? Don't poke at, don't poke it, my guy, don't poke at my candidate, don't poke at my opinion, my political view, my thing, right? But the problem is sometimes Jesus does. Jesus does poke at those things. I don't, I don't have to convince you, River West, Jesus is Jesus is not a Democrat. All right? And Jesus is not a Republican. Jesus is a theocrat, right? And if you don't know what that is, look it up. Jesus says, I'm I'm the king, right? And the problem is we can take so many good things in our culture and we can turn them into ultimate things. We can turn them into idols and we don't even know it. They can be insidious. They creep in. How touchy do you get when someone threatens or challenges or pokes at that thing? That might be a sign. Might be a sign. Let me make an an observation about this incident in Daniel. Have you noticed that this looks a whole lot like a Christian worship service? It's a counterfeit. Satan is so unoriginal. He doesn't have any original ideas. Everything that he does, he has to borrow from God. He He just takes God's great ideas and he creates a really cheap counterfeit. So here we have, think about it, we have out in this plane, we have a counterfeit image that's been erected to worship. And of course, we know the New Testament says there's only one image of the invisible God that we are to worship, and that image is Jesus Christ. But here's Satan creating a cheap knockoff. And we have a we have a counterfeit worship team. When the music plays, everyone begins to worship. We have a counterfeit gathering of all the peoples of the world. Every tribe, nation, and tongue in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom have been forced to come together. Amazing. It's so interesting. And did you notice, where did this happen? Daniel tells us all of this took place out on a plane near Babylon, the plain of Dura. And the reader knows, wait a minute, that sounds exactly like Genesis chapter 11, when men gathered on a plain near Babylon and they said, let's build a city and let's build a tower and let's make a name for ourselves in obstinate rejection of God. We don't need God. Let's bring, let's build something that brings glory to humankind. And what did they build? They built the tower of, of Babel. And that, that, that human longing motivated by the spirit of Babylon, by Satan himself, it's just, it's just a pattern for human history over and over and over as people try to create reality without acknowledging the true and living God. All throughout redemptive history. Right here in the book of Daniel. Incredible. Historians say that on this day in the plains of Dura, something like hundreds of thousands of people were at this ceremony. And I want you to imagine what that would look like. Hundreds of thousands of people. And at the moment that the music played, every single one of them Fell. I bet you could hear the sound of clothing and robes as people fell to their knees with their faces down and their rear ends in the air and they worshiped every single person. Imagine it, except for three. We look at it. Verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. And it's interesting, these Chaldeans, you may remember, these were probably some of the very same guys who were saved in the last chapter by Daniel and his friends when they finally came up with the right interpretation of the dream. How crazy that they this quickly turn on on these three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they came and they maliciously accused the Jews. And here's what they declared. O King Nebuchadnezzar, O King, live forever. You, O King, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. By the way, this furnace, we'll look at it more next week. It probably burned to 2,000 degrees. This was most likely the furnace that Nebuchadnezzar used to melt the gold to cover the image. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, sarcasm, sarcasm, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. He's saying, I'm giving you a second chance. I'm going to play the music again. And if you fall down and worship, fine. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And brothers and sisters, can I tell you something? Can I draw truth out of this passage that's true for every Christian throughout every age? To be faithful to Christ in Babylon is to suffer. It just is. I don't even have to convince you of that. You already know that. There's no way around it. To live faithfully in a world where we don't belong will always involve suffering. To be faithful to Christ will will mean you will be an outcast. It will mean you will stick out. It means you will stand out. It means you will look out of touch. You won't be cool. You won't be relevant. You won't be popular. To be godly and faithful to Christ will often mean to be lonely in a world where we don't belong. I can't count the number of conversations I've had around my dinner table with my girls where we've talked about this, where they've come home in tears over things that have happened at school or in their lives. And where we've said, this is part of what it means to follow Jesus. Sometimes to follow Jesus is to suffer, to be lonely, to stick out, to to not be relevant, to not be cool. And moms and dads, you've got to talk to your kids about Babylon. You've got to prepare them. Because if you think that Babylon is going to lovingly tolerate our Christian faith, think again. Babylon is relentless. Babylon is pressure, constant pressure. Sometimes it's even dangerous. I imagine what it would have been like for these three in this moment. Think of the suffering they had already experienced. Think their heart rates were racing. Their hearts were pounding. They were totally freaked out. I'm absolutely sure of it. They knew this is a life-threatening situation. We're in, think of their, 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 their wives and children at home worrying over them, crying out to God, praying for them, suffering on their behalf. I imagine that in this moment, they were already thinking of ways to get around this. Thinking, you know, maybe... Maybe we fudge just this one time. It's just one thing, right? Just one moment where we fall down. Maybe it would be better to keep these positions of power for the sake of the common good, you know, for the sake of the rest of the Jews in exile. They probably had all kinds of things they were running through their head, ways to get around this. And yet, they stood their ground. So powerful. How do you know where to draw the line? It boils down to a worship thing. I love a quote that I'd love to read to you from one of my favorite authors. He's a a mathematician and a scientist at Oxford named John Lennox. Here's how he described this moment, how he described Nebuchadnezzar in particular. I love this. It's so profound. Nebuchadnezzar had never in his entire life encountered such studied defiance. As it began to dawn upon him that there was a very real sense in which he was actually powerless against these men. His anger knew no bounds. Of course, he could kill them, but that was not the point. What he could not do was to force them to bow. Up to now, he had thought that human beings would do anything to save their lives. His whole scheme depended on this assumption, that a human being would do anything for the sake of the preservation of their own life. But to his utter amazement, he discovered that there were some in his very own administration who regarded their lives as of relative value compared with the absolute value of God. And Nebuchadnezzar couldn't believe it. And it sent him into a burning... Ra- you mean to tell me that you care more about honoring some God than you care about your own... Lives. And he had thrown out this question. He had said, which God will deliver you from my hands? Did you see that? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered. And here's what they said. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, And friends, I have to tell you, this is one of the most breathtaking statements of biblical faith in the entire Bible. It is actually not possible for me to overstate how profound this moment is. A depiction of true biblical faith in an astounding declaration of confidence in God. These men tell Nebuchadnezzar, that they have taken into consideration the possibility that God might not deliver them. Did you hear what I just said? Let Let me say that again. In an astounding demonstration of faith and confidence in God, they inform Nebuchadnezzar that they've taken into consideration the possibility that God might not deliver them. Here's what they're saying. They're saying, our God can deliver us. That's not the question. The point is, even if he doesn't, we're still going to worship him. We're going to worship him no matter what happens. Because worship is not about the perks that we get from it. We have have absolutely no doubt about God's power. What we're not going to do here is stand before you and prescribe what God's purpose is. We don't know his purpose. You say, King, can our God deliver us? 100%. But even if he doesn't, we're going to worship him. What does that mean for you? You'd say, I absolutely know God can save my marriage, but even if he doesn't, I'm going to worship him. I absolutely know God can save my job, but even if he doesn't, I'm going to worship him. I have no doubt in my mind that God could heal me from my illness, from my disease. And even if he doesn't, I'm going to worship him. Many of you know that last week, Tim Keller informed all of his followers that he's been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, which is about the worst prognosis you can get. And if you've been around here, you know, Tim Keller has been a very influential person for many of us, certainly for me. I I thank God for his ministry on a regular basis. And one of the most impactful things that that happened to me last week was when I read post that he had sent out to his followers, asking and kind of sharing with his friends and followers how he wanted them to pray for him. And he said a couple things. He said, please, will you pray about this? Pray that that God will use medical means or his direct intervention to make the cancer regress to the point of vanishing. So Keller's saying, I have absolutely no doubt God can heal me. Not a question. Please pray for that. But then look at the very next thing that he said. Pray for Kathy and me that we use this opportunity to be weaned from the joys of this world and to desire God's presence more than anything else. At the end of the post, he said, Kathy and I are praying along with these words from John Newton. And then he quoted John Newton. And the quote said, may we be ambitious to experience what the glorious gospel is capable of affecting both as to sanctification and consolation in the state of infirmity, that we may have our loins girded up, our lamps burning, and by our simplicity and spirituality, constrain those who know us to acknowledge that we have been with Jesus, have sat at his feet and drunk his spirit. In other words, Tim said... I have no doubt at all that God can heal me. And even if he doesn't, I'm going to worship him. I'm going to worship him and no other. And brothers and sisters, may it be true of you and I. In this world where we're constantly confronted with cheap counterfeit knockoffs and some of them seem so important and they can creep in and they can creep up and they can become so important to us that we don't even know we've elevated them to the point of God. It's a worship thing. So here's how I need to end my sermon. I'm going to end my sermon by throwing at you a conundrum. And if I don't do this, I will not do justice to this text. And the key to understanding this passage. And so what I need to do is I need to ask you a question, and I want you to be as honest as you possibly can about the answer to this question. And here's the question. When you hear this story, which character in the story are you most inclined to associate yourself with? Now, be honest, okay? Because this is church. We should be honest here. When you hear this story, which character did you most naturally want to relate to? Because, see, we probably tended to scoff at Nebuchadnezzar. I cannot believe Nebuchadnezzar, right? And, and we mo- I know, I most wanted to say, yeah, I'm like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as if I could have stood in my own power in that moment and stood faithfully in front of Nebuchadnezzar and lived faithfully, right? But if we were to be honest, we might say, in a a moment of true honesty, we might say, actually, I'm more like those crowds of hundreds of thousands who, when the music played, I I just fall. Or, or, or even worse, in a moment of honesty, we might say, I, I'm actually most like Nebuchadnezzar, trying to build my own kingdom. I mean, is not, that? I just want everyone around me to understand this is my world. This is a movie, and I am the lead character, right? I want everyone to worship in my kingdom, and that's our reality so much of the time. To say, I'm, I'm like Nebuchadnezzar. If I had Nebuchadnezzar's power and Nebuchadnezzar's resources, would I have done any better than Nebuchadnezzar did? I don't know. And that's the point. The first person I'm meant to see in this moment of this model of faithfulness, the very first person I'm supposed to see is not myself, but Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect faithful life that I could never live in my place. You remember Jesus Christ when he was led into the wilderness and there he stood before the prince of this world, the, 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 the Satan, the spirit of Babylon who tempted him. Remember what happened in that moment? Satan led him up to a, to a high mountain and he showed him all of the kingdoms of the world. And you remember what Satan said to Jesus in that moment? He showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. That's Daniel chapter three, verse five. Fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. This this picture of faithfulness, these three men standing in this moment, with the threat of the fiery furnace. It's, it's a picture of the king that we truly need. King Jesus who will come and he will face his own fire. He will go into his own furnace, the fire of the punishment for sin and evil in our world. When God's wrath is poured out, except that Jesus will not be delivered in that moment. He will burn in our place. He will die. He will suffer in in that furnace where he took on the sin of the world in a model of perfect faithfulness, our savior and our king. He not only lived this perfect life, but he died a death in our place that we could never die. He went into the furnace on our behalf and he took upon his perfect sinful person all of the sins of the world in our place so that we could be free. And why? So that now as as Christians, as people who have been saved by grace, by that sacrifice, we can turn to Jesus and we can say, Jesus, if I'm being honest, I'm more like Nebuchadnezzar or I'm more like those crowds left to my own. I don't have the spiritual power to remain faithful in Babylon. But because of you and your love and your grace and your mercy and the gift of your Holy Spirit, I know that you're giving me power to live faithfully. And I can't do it on my own. And I don't want to do it on my own. I don't want to reject you. I need you, Jesus. And so is the people of God. We come again and again and again. And we say, will you help me, Jesus, to be faithful? And it's that prayer. And it's that request we'll make again today as we get ready to worship. Will you bow your heads with me, folks? And we'll pray. Our Heavenly Father, how much we need. Not just the book of Daniel, but every single page of your your word, of your scriptures, the precious. But we think especially today of the profound truth of the book of Daniel and this story. Gives us so much wisdom, so much insight. It's it's like a surgeon with a scalpel who's come to to cut away and expose, and and in mercy, help us to look deep within into our hearts in total humility to say, Jesus, I I know that I have idols that are hiding in there, insidious, creeping under the surface. And I want, to, I want you to reveal them so I can repent of them and let go of them and worship you alone in this moment. And so how we thank you, Jesus, for this time. And it's you now that we want to worship. It's you now that we want to serve. And we declare like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we have absolutely no doubt, God, of your power to deliver and save and heal and fix. But no matter what you do, we're going to worship you, Lord God, because you alone are worthy, we pray. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, friends. Let's worship together.